Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thank you, Krista. Thank you, Cody and the band, for leading us this morning. Great to see all of you here this morning. Good morning. Good to see your faces. For those of you who are at home with us online, thank you for joining us online together. You know, we started kind of a little bit of maybe what I hope might be a tradition for us on Sunday mornings, at least for the time that we're apart. And we've been talking about the fact that whether we are here in person or whether we're joining online, we are all live here together. And so last week, I had you guys scream and clap and be as loud as you can to welcome those and to say hello to those who are at home. We kind of did that a little bit already with the good morning thing, but I want this one to be louder. I want it to feel like as we clap and celebrate and say hi to our people at home that we're like in the living room with them, watching with them alongside, okay? So let's do that on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. All right, thank you for that, and hopefully that'll become a little bit of a tradition for us. We've lost kind of our time to gather and, and, and say and greet one another, and so this is kind of a greeting to one another as well to remind ourselves that we are here, right? We are here, and we're glad to be here. So thank you again for joining us this morning. We are continuing our Crucial Questions series as we work our way through these questions that have been submitted by you guys to us about things like Christianity, the Bible, faith and culture, and those kinds of things. And you know if you've been with us in this series that there have been two things that we have founded this series on. We have talked about the importance of, of having a biblical perspective, so we are looking to the Bible to answer these questions. And then secondly, we've made a distinction between the things that are essential versus the things that are non-essential. We've been talking about that through this series as well. And so whenever you say something like that, of course, one of the questions you're going to get, and we got this question, is what is essential? So can you define for us, you're talking about the essentials and the non-essentials, what exactly is essential? So we're going to answer that question this morning, and rather than just going through like a list of doctrines and saying like, okay, here are the essential things we need to know, uh, we're going to do it a little bit differently because that's kind of boring, and at the same time, I don't know that it works as well as what we're going to try to do this morning, which is to answer a few other questions that have been asked to us out of these 70 questions that have been submitted to us that focus on the essentials of the gospel in particular. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at the gospel of Jesus, which we consider to be essential for Christian faith. We consider it to be essential to biblical Christianity and kind of hit on three of those questions that have been asked so that we can then get to a place where we can allow the essentials of the faith to rise to the surface in our discussion of these things. Now, when I tell you what these topics are here in a couple of minutes, they might seem a little bit strange, like how in the world do those things go together? But trust me, we're getting to a place where we can understand exactly what are the essentials of the faith and how do they relate particularly to the gospel of Jesus and how we understand the gospel. You know, Socrates once said the unexamined life is, is not worth living, something like that. <laughs> um, but I, I, think, I think it's important for us from time to time to realize that the unexamined faith is not worth believing. We need to be in a place where we are examining what is it that we really believe. And uh, I think especially right now, guys, I'm just going to be honest, when we have a hundred million things that we can be disagreeing about and we are disagreeing about all over the place, I think there's something refreshing about coming back to the gospel as the church and being able to say, okay, this is why we are here. This is what it means to be the church. This is the hope of the gospel. This is what we're united on. And so let's talk about that this morning as we explore the essentials of what the faith is. And of course, as we talk about these things, we're going to get into some theology. And I know some of the feedback we've gotten from this, uh, from this series already has been, man, a lot of these messages seem like they might be like seminary classes. They feel like seminary classes. 
And I get that to some degree, but I also want to remind us that we are told in Scripture to love God with our minds. And so our faith is as intellectual as it is emotional and spiritual. And if you're not naturally an intellectual type person, this is going to stretch you in a good way. Maybe you can think about it as like eating your theological vegetables. Or do you remember what it was like to eat vegetables as a kid? Right? Your parents always told you they were necessary and essential for your growth. But when you looked at a vegetable, when you looked at vegetables on the table, they were the last thing you really wanted to put on your plate. You know, they didn't smell good, they didn't look good, and you had tasted them a couple of times, and so you didn't really want to taste them again because they didn't taste that good. But as you grew, and as you began to eat those vegetables, you realized how essential they were, and maybe you even developed a taste for them over time. So maybe you're at this point as an adult in your life where you actually like vegetables, right? And so maybe these can be like theological vegetables. Maybe they're not the first thing that you would want to talk about, but at the same time, they're essential. And as you taste them, you might find that you have a liking for them, and they'll certainly help you to grow. And I'll try my best to do, like, if you want to continue with that metaphor, to provide like a little cup of ranch that you can dip your vegetables in so they go down a little bit easier. If that's a thing for you, it's not, I'm not a big ranch person, but I see people do that, so I guess that helps with the taste of vegetables. So we'll try to do that here this morning. But we're going to talk about some core aspects of, of the gospel. And as we do, I want to kind of present it this way. We're not going to have a chance to do a deep dive into any one of these three topics. Really, each of these three topics could be its own sermon. But I want to give us a general overview, and I want to try to accomplish three things with each one of these topics. First, I want to be able to define what is essential in the Christian faith by engaging with these topics. So as we talk about them, as we talk about two sides of a debate maybe, we might see the, the things that join those things together are what the essentials of the gospel are all about. Secondly, I'm going to talk about what I personally believe and why. And since we had so much fun, at least I did, with those confidence ratings last week, I'm going to bring those back a little bit this week. I got some good feedback for that, so I'm going to use them again this week because they're fun and, you know, maybe they haven't jumped the shark yet, so I can maybe use them one more week. Um, and, and we're going to get into that. And as we do, um, we'll be talking a little bit about kind of the non-essentials of the essentials, right? We'll branch into that. And then the third thing I want to do is define for you as best I can what we believe here at North Bible Church. So if there's a stated belief that we have about this or just in general the way that we practice and respond and teach these things, okay? So with all that being said, here are the three topics that we're going to be addressing today. These are questions that were submitted to us in some form. We're going to be talking about the prosperity gospel, what is known as the prosperity gospel. How does it affect our view of, gospel, of the gospel in Scripture? And it's going to help us define what exactly is the gospel that we believe. What exactly is the gospel that we, we believe as we contrast it with what is known as the prosperity gospel. Secondly, we're going to talk about predestination and free will, or what is also called Calvinism versus Arminianism. And in that question, we're going to look at how does God, how does the gospel save us? So what is the gospel? How does the gospel save us? And then third, we're going to talk about what is known as the free grace versus the lordship salvation debate, uh, or maybe cross and kingdom, as we're going to talk about it a little bit this morning as well. And that question is going to, and, and that question is going to be basically, what, why does the gospel save us? So if we've got the gospel and how does the gospel save us, then why does the gospel save us? What impact does the gospel have in our lives, okay? So we got those three things going. We have a lot to talk about this morning. Let's pray over these things because I think there's a lot for us to talk about and we want to make sure that we are wise in the way that we address them. I want to make sure I'm wise in the way that I say it. So let's pray for that. Father, I thank you this morning that we have a chance to focus on the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And as we do, Lord, we ask, uh, I ask personally for wisdom that you would help me communicate well 
that even as I communicate my own perspective and interpretation on these things, Lord, uh, that they wouldn't be communi uh, communicated in a divisive way, but a unifying way. That in everything we do, we would see the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that it would take root in our hearts and take root in our minds as you stretch us and you challenge us by the truths of your gospel. And Lord, as we think about what it means to study theology, theology is just the study of God. It is who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be in your word and so we bank on that this morning as we study what you have to say to us. We ask that, Spirit, that you would open our minds, help us to understand that word that you inspired to be written so that we would know uh, how it applies and, Lord, how it changes our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. All right, so let's start with this subject called the prosperity gospel. Um, this is a very popular stream of teaching, if you haven't noticed, especially in the U.S. And we talked about last week the heresies that plagued the early church when we talked about heaven. And I mentioned a couple of them in particular. The Judaizing heresy, which was the heresy that basically said that Jesus was not fully sufficient. You could believe in Jesus, but at the same time, you also needed to continue to fulfill the uh, religious laws, in particular the Jewish religious laws. So these were good works and deeds that you had to add on to the work of Jesus. And then there was the other heresy that was known as Gnosticism, the broad view of that there is some kind of secret knowledge that these, that these special teachers are teaching, that yes, you can believe in Jesus, but in order to really know the secret to life and to be successful and to be enlightened, you have to listen to what these teachers have to say because they have the special secret knowledge. Now, I mention those two things because I believe the prosperity gospel gives us a bulk heresy combination. It's like the Costco of heresies. If you're into heresies, this is the one you want to look at because it combines elements of both of these actually into something that it calls the gospel. What I mean by that is that one of the central tenets of the prosperity gospel, whether it's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel or the word of faith movement, it goes by different names, is that is this name it and claim it belief that essentially says if you want it, all you have to do is speak it and claim it in faith and God will give it to you. And typically those things relate to things like being physically healthy, materially wealthy, and personally happy in every circumstance. It's built upon that idea that God wants his children to be all of those things at all times. Which sounds like a great thing on the surface, doesn't it? I mean, who doesn't want to be wealthy? Who doesn't want to have to think about worry about money? Who doesn't want to be healthy? And who doesn't want to be happy? And that's why millions of people follow this kind of teaching. But the question we have to ask, and the question that we're asking in this series is, is that biblical? Is that what the Bible defines as the gospel? Well, I think as we look a little bit closer, one of the troubling things is not just the message that's being preached by the prosperity gospel, but the teachers and the leaders of the movement themselves. In fact, I believe that it's what Paul's talking about and warning Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he says this, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So what kind of teacher is this? Well, Paul then explains imagining that godliness is a means of gain and by this he's talking about financial gain but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Look, from my perspective, I don't know that you could explain prosperity gospel teachers any better than what's just been explained in those last two verses of that passage. Because in the end, it's all about this healthy, wealthy, happy living. Now again, what's wrong with that? I mean, if God loves us and he's our father, why wouldn't he want that for us? Well, the reality is that our Heavenly Father wants things that are often different than the things that we want. We're actually told in Scripture that our desires themselves, we can't even trust our own desires unless they are changed and reformed by God because the reality is that our own desires will lead us astray. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Here's the desire we should have, seeking for God. But all have turned aside, Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. So Romans says, Romans 3 there says, look, no one even seeks for God. It's not even our natural inclination or our desire to seek for God. So how can we trust our desires? Matthew 6, 31 through 33 says this, where Jesus reforms this back into what we should be seeking. Look, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Which, by the way, the prosperity gospel is all focused on those things. How healthy are you going to be? What are you going to wear? What are you going to look like? How much success are you going to experience in this world? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Right? Those who don't know God, those are the, those are, that's what they have to seek after in this world. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But first, what you're to seek is the, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Look, where the prosperity gospel celebrates and glorifies a desire for money, Jesus himself also warned against the deceitfulness of greed, and so did Paul. We just saw that from 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. Look, that doesn't mean it's a sin to be wealthy. That doesn't even mean it's a sin to enjoy the material things of this world. But to say that a Christian in every situation has to be rich and wealthy and healthy and happy in every case creates a problem for even guys like Jesus and Paul, who for them in their lives we know Jesus was not wealthy, Paul was not wealthy, Paul suffered in many places for the gospel, Paul suffered poverty, he suffered uh, the thorn in the flesh that was probably a physical ailment that never actually got healed by God, and he struggled through all of that. And we also see that in the midst of this, Jesus and Paul, who weren't rich, were both killed by following the will of God in the end. And so that creates a problem for prosperity gospel theology, if not being an outright lie. But I said earlier, one of the biggest problems with the prosperity gospel is that it teaches if you have enough faith, God will give you the desires of your heart. And so what this creates is really this, this mindset where if I don't have the things that I want, if my promotion hasn't come at work, if my bank account isn't as full as I want it to be, if I'm struggling from a health issue, it must be because I don't have enough faith. Or it must be because God doesn't favor you. And what's the solution to showing more faith, according to the prosperity teachers? What's the solution to having God's favor? Money, money, money. If you sow that seed of faith, you'll show, that, you'll show God that you have the faith that you need in order to get the thing that you want. And what is that, what is that seed of faith? It's giving to their ministry. 
It's giving to this preacher. So you end up with a situation with a single mother living on $25,000 a year who's just trying to make ends meet. She's giving every last dime she can to a multimillionaire preacher, and he's telling her she doesn't have enough faith to be favored by God like she is. It's a demonic and Gnostic heresy which says that if you have this secret knowledge, it'll unlock the success of life for you. And it functions really as a religious pyramid scheme that keeps the poor poor, makes the rich even richer, taught by men who prey on those who are experiencing real suffering and invoke the name of Jesus to complete the hoax. And then as that preacher preaches that message, he hops on his $50 million jet, goes to one of his three $5 million homes, and says, glory to God, hallelujah, all the way home. And here's something to remember. Just because someone says glory to God doesn't mean they're glorifying God. Just because somebody is teaching Scripture doesn't mean they're actually giving you the Word of God. Prosperity uh, gospel preachers do both quite frequently, and they do it as a scheme to fool people, I believe. And in the process, they drag the name of Jesus through the mud with the fruit that they display. So what does the prosperity gospel get right then? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I'm trying to find a middle ground here. I know that there are different streams of the prosperity gospel, and so there are some cases where they communicate the love of God, the abundant life that Jesus wants to give. They do talk about the cross, but I think in some ways they use those terms differently than how the Bible understands them to be. And so I would say that in the end result, what Paul said about the false teachers in the first century to the Galatians fits. He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Look, I think this discussion helps clarify for us what the gospel of Jesus really is. Because going by the prosperity gospel might lead us to believe that has something to do with maybe the gospel of Jesus. But is it the biblical gospel? I think in the end, a system that would view Jesus and Paul as guys who lacked faith because they were materially poor and persecuted really speaks to its own demise. I don't know how much more we need to say about that point in particular, but I will say this. Whereas the prosperity movement enslaves people with shame and obligation and works, the gospel of Jesus sets us free. Not by a price that's paid with our bank accounts to set us free from shame, but a price that is paid for Je- by Jesus once and for all on the cross to free us from shame. The gospel of Jesus points us to Jesus as the object of our faith. The prosperity gospel points us to the prosperity teacher and his secrets about how to be successful. The gospel of Jesus shows us that our desires were made to find fulfillment in Jesus and in his kingdom and not to enslave ourselves to the idolatry of the material things of this world. And look, I think personally, for all these reasons, I see a lot to be concerned about, to say the least, about prosperity gospel teachers. And I believe I'd give that my confidence level, a confidence level of nine, which you know that's a pretty high number for me if you were listening last week. Now, from what I know, North Bible Church doesn't have an official stance regarding the prosperity gospel in the sense that you won't find a statement in our bylaws or in our statement of faith about it. But I think what you would see is that what we consistently teach here, what we consistently value, is in opposition to these things that are espoused by the prosperity gospel as we know it today. Okay? 
So there we are. So that's where we land there. From talking about the prosperity gospel, we go then into this hairy discussion of predestination and free will. And look, uh, I'm not fond really of all these titles that we're really using for these topics in some ways, and this is one that I'm not particularly fond of, but it's how people typically know the discussion and the debate, and it's how the question was phrased to us, so I wanted to make sure that we connected that language. But I would say I'm going to frame this more from the standpoint of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And I'm, a little, I'm even a little hesitant to use the word versus in the middle of this, because I don't want to communicate that this is some theological blood sport where one side wins and the other side loses, and there's one side that are Christians and the other side are non-Christians, one side believes the gospel, the other doesn't, that kind of thing. Because uh, certainly this debate has gone back since like the first couple hundred years of, of, this, uh, uh, of the church, and so um, over time it has caused a lot of theological bloodshed and sometimes literal bloodshed. I mean, there's been wars and fights fought over this, this, fought over this debate. But in the end, I want to remind us that this is a debate among family, among people who love the church, among people who love each other, among people who love Jesus, and among people who believe the gospel and love Jesus' words. So no matter what side you line up or end up on this side of the debate, we are all together in this, and these are not essentials according to what it means to actually be a Christian. But what I like exploring about a debate like this is that it tells us again, or it poses that question, how does God save us through the gospel? So we go from defining what the gospel is in our discussion about the prosperity gospel to now how God actually saves us through the gospel. And we talk specifically about what role does grace play in that? And what does faith look like as it, as, it, as it comes to how the gospel saves us and how God saves us through Jesus Christ? And this is often phrased, as I said earlier, predestination versus free will. But the reality of this is both sides actually believe in predestination. They believe in predestination and election because it's all over the Bible, for one. And secondly, those words are there. But secondly, if you look even back to the Old Testament with Abraham, beginning from Abraham on forward, and maybe even before then, predestination and election is a part of the biblical story. So what Arminians and Calvinists disagree on is not that God predestines or elects us, but on what basis does he do that? We're going to talk about that in a minute here. But Calvinists basically say that God just predestines us based upon his own sovereign will. Arminians would say God predestines us based on being able to see how we would respond to the gospel by looking forward into history. But if you're familiar with this debate, you know that there are five points that Calvinists and Arminians disagree on. It's commonly known as the five points of Calvinism, but really what it is is this has emerged over, over several hundred years to be this place where these are the places where Arminians and Calvinists actually disagree. Calvinists will call these the doctrines of grace. Arminians refer to them somewhat, in a, in sometimes a derogatory term, the five points of Calvinism. But we're going to explore it that way. If you know those five points, you may know that it spells out the acronym TULIP. So we, we're dealing with, we're gonna, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, we're going to deal with some big theological words, but I'm going to explain those, those words to you, talk about how Calvinists see them, and then tell you the Arminian response to them, okay? And then I want to point out also before we get started that not all Calvinists are five-point Calvinists. You'll run into somebody who says, yeah, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm Reformed, and I believe in only like three or four of the points, or I would rephrase them differently and that sort of thing, okay? So here we go. So TULIP, the first letter of TULIP is T. T represents the doctrine of total depravity, what Calvinists mean by this is that they say that human beings are so rebellious and so depraved that they could not possibly on their own respond in faith to the gospel. We just read from Romans 3 where it says, none of us seek after God. Calvinists would point to that as evidence of saying, look, none of us actually can seek 
uh, after God. So the way that faith happens is that God gives us faith as a gift, and through that faith, then we have the ability to respond to the gospel. And God gives individually to those whom he, he, he elects that gift of faith to believe in the gospel. The Arminian in response would say, yes, human beings are depraved, and some might even say totally depraved, but that there is grace that God gives to everyone, which they would call common grace or specifically pre, uh, uh, pre, uh, pre, prevenient grace, sorry, prevenient grace that allows somebody to respond to the gospel on their own, anyone and everybody, okay? That's the Arminian view on that. Second point is unconditional election represented by the letter U. This is the point at which I talked about earlier. The predestination election thing is distinguished. Calvinists say that God sovereignly chose who he chooses, whom he chooses to, to save and to condemn, and it's not based on anything that at least that we know of. It's only based upon the sovereign will of God. So we can't say it's based on anything good in us. It's just God choosing however God chooses that to happen. That's in the most general way. Arminians would say that God has chosen us and predestined us to salvation based on those whom he saw would respond to the gospel invitation in faith. It was by their own initiative then. So from you we go to L, limited atonement. And this is where things like, um, you know, these, uh, <laughs> these words kind of break down because limited atonement probably isn't a great term to use when you've got to use an acronym. It kind of forces you into language like this. But limited atonement essentially means that Calvinists believe that Jesus' death was sufficient atonement for the world, but that Jesus specifically died for the elect. Probably a better term for that would be particular redemption. Jesus died for the elect on the cross. The Arminians would say that the death of Christ was sufficient for atonement for everyone, just like the Calvinists would, but they differ in saying that the death of Jesus was for everyone and anyone who might possibly respond out of their own initiative. Fourth, irresistible grace represented by the eye. Again, another one of those unfortunate terms, I think. But Calvinists say that the new birth and the gracious work of God in our hearts will do what it's designed to do, which kind of makes sense because God gives the gift of faith and that gift of faith then produces faith. And in that sense, grace is irresistible. But Arminians would say that the grace of God is resistible, that it begins in our hearts when we make a decision to have faith in Jesus in the gospel. And then finally, the P stands for perseverance of the saints. You might know this as once saved, always saved. That's a Calvinist belief to say basically that since the grace of God has begun its work, it will not quit its work in us, and it will preserve us to the end. All those who are truly saved will remain saved forever. And Arminians say that God works to preserve his people, but that it is possible for Christians to fall away and to quote-unquote lose their salvation. Now, all of that, all of that discussion, and probably more, you see some things that overlap, but you see some differences probably, obviously, or I would put it that way. Now, look, all of this, almost 2,000 years of debate, really what this breaks down to is just one simple thing. It's the sovereignty of God versus the freedom of human beings. And what it comes down to is either God or human beings can be completely free, but not both. That's essentially what, what this breaks down to. Either God is completely sovereign, and if he is, then he's free to do whatever he wants, or human beings are completely free, and that we have complete free will, and not even the will of God can trump our free will. It's essentially what it comes down to. Richard Mao, who's a Calvinist theologian, says this, here's how I see the heart of the matter. 
Where the Calvinist departs from other theological systems is in the insistence on placing the central emphasis on the sovereignty of God or the freedom of God. Unlike other traditions, Calvinism rigorously guards the emphasis on divine sovereignty by, allowing, or by refusing to allow any other theological point to distract from it. So, so the other, in other words, the sovereignty of God is the most important thing over and above all things. This refusal comes through most obviously in dealing with issues of human responsibility. The Bible clearly teaches that both God is sovereign and that human beings are responsible for the basic choices they make. But when Calvinists get around to attempting to explain the relationship between God's sovereignty and human freedom, we are so concerned to protect the former that we are willing to risk sounding like we are waffling on the latter, i.e. human freedom, rather than to imply that in any way God's power is limited. Now look, I think that contrast again is seen most directly in the understanding of predestination versus election. And ultimately it boils down to this. Who chooses who? Do we choose God or does God choose us? Simply put. That's, that's, the, debate, that's the debate at the heart of this thing that's been going on for almost 2,000 years. Do we choose God or does God choose us? So, with all that being said, I promised I would give you my position. I think a fun thing to do as we go through this is try to guess which side I'm going to land on in the end. By the way, I'm trying to remain balanced in all this, but I'm sure my bias comes through as I talk through this. Um, but I would refer to myself as Reformed. Um, in this debate, I lean towards the Calvinist side rather than the Arminian side. I'm not a five-point Calvinist, but I'm, if I'm going to pick a side and say how salvation happens, I'm going to side with the sovereignty of God, that God chooses us primarily before we choose God. That doesn't mean that there's not human freedom. That doesn't mean that there's not a will that human beings have. That doesn't mean that there's not personal responsibility. But it does mean that I want to err on the side of protecting the sovereignty of God. And I think in this regard as well, I want to protect the grace of God as much as possible as well. Uh, the Calvinist Charles Spurgeon was once asked why he was a Calvinist, and he simply responded this way, salvation is of the Lord. And I think that's exactly where I land with this, the Lord and his sovereign grace to save. So if I'm going to give you a rating here, let's say five is being indifferent to either side. I don't know what I believe. I would give this a seven on the side of Calvinism. Doesn't mean it defines my Christianity. Doesn't mean it's necessarily an essential belief for me, but it is certainly where I land on this particular debate. So there you go. A North Bible Church uh, does not hold this as an essential either. I think we value the sovereignty and the grace of God alone for salvation. But as we have covered as well, the sides, both sides of this debate do as well. So no matter which side, those things are still held by both sides. So we don't have to disagree on that. Um, there's no, so there's no official position here at North. And we can still worship together. We can still love one another. We can still be in Bible studies with one another. In fact, there are people probably on both sides of this. And you may have been in a community group with them for eight years and maybe even never had this conversation before and know where they're at on this. That's how minor this can be in a lot of ways. But I think it's important for us. The question was asked, and it's an appropriate one because it's asked a lot to just kind of flesh this out. And what I think it, it clarifies for us is this idea, this essential nature that it reminds us of the fact that we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, and for God's glory alone. And both sides believe that. We just believe it a little bit differently as far as how it applies, okay? So that being said, with the few minutes we have left, I want to hit on this last one, which is called free grace versus lordship salvation. Another unfortunate term and title, I think, for a a debate because I don't want to put these things at odds with one another. I believe both of these things are in Scripture. There is free grace, but there is also the lordship of Jesus. And so how do you rectify those things? Well, typically people have taken one side or the other on this, and this has become 
quite a heated debate, to be honest, over the past couple decades in the church, especially the American church. And it, it gets down to this question of how do we know that we have been saved by Jesus? How do we know that we are Christians? How do we know that people who claim to be Christians are actually Christians? I mean, maybe you've experienced a situation where somebody you know claims to be a Christian and their life doesn't look anything like Jesus at all other than maybe they go to church and they say they're a Christian. So what's the rub there? Are they, you know, what, what are we supposed to assume about what it means for the gospel to take root in our lives? Uh, in an effort to explain kind of why these things happen, the free grace side has said that it's enough to believe that you need a Savior and confess your need, but that repentance from sin is not actually necessary to be a Christian or to be saved, and neither, by the way, are displaying good works in faith once you come to faith in Jesus. So in other words, you can believe, you can be a Christian, your life doesn't have to be changed at all, and you don't actually have to repent, just, just believe that you need a Savior and confess that you need a savior. So you can see how this question is a little bit tricky because this position, the free grace position, wants to protect something that's very good, the free gracious work of Jesus Christ. Just what Krista talked about earlier from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Though the lordship people on the other side would say the same thing. They would say, we are not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus' complete salvation work. However, where the issue occurs with them is the free grace contention that repentance is not necessary. Repentance from sin is not necessary for saving faith. They would say that, and the lordship people would also say that good works naturally happen as a result of being a new creation in Jesus. If we are born again by the Spirit and we are indwelt by the Spirit, then it ought to change, that reality ought to change who we are. And His work in us should begin to transform us in a different way. And so that's what Lordship people say. And they would point to, to places like Acts 2, 38. After Peter preaches his gospel sermon at Pentecost, he says to the crowds this following, in this following verse, he says this to the crowds. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they would also point to a place like James 2 to talk about good works as an aspect of our faith. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I want to quickly say, again, you can probably tell which side I'm leaning on already, but I will quickly say I do admire the free grace emphasis on God's free gift of grace to us. I think that is absolutely true. But I do side with the lordship crowd on this. And the reason why is that we just have too many places in Scripture that tell us about what it means to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, what it means to, to, to live out of the fruit of, uh, of the character of Christ, right? The fruit of the Spirit. There should be evidence of the fact that the Spirit is in us. 
I think there are too many things that are told to us about how we should live and that those things are not just suggestions that maybe you want to embrace one day, but they're actually worded as commands. Now this is how you live. I think about Romans 6, right, where, we, where, we are, where, we are ba- where the picture of baptism is told to us, where we, where we say goodbye to the old self and we're raised to walk in the newness of life as we raise out of the waters. I think those are more than just metaphorical. Those are actually things that are supposed to happen in our lives. I think about what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones uh, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Look, I think the we have Abraham as our father was the ancient way of saying, well, I say I'm a Christian and I go to church. Right? That's exactly what they're claiming. Well, we have this in us. And Jesus says, don't say that. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he also says in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look, when I think what Jesus is talking about in terms of fruit of repentance, he's talking about not just things that we do for Jesus after he saves us, but he's talking about that thing right there at the end. The, ju- the, the judgment call is this, right? The standard is this. I never knew you would depart from me. Do we really know Jesus? This is a personal call, and that's what displays fruit. Do we know Jesus in the end? That's what really counts. And yes, naturally, as a result of that, as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in us, we will be transformed. We will do good works, so to speak. We will live in a way that honors and replicates and displays the character of Jesus in our lives. But I think that's the key to it all. Do you know Jesus? And if you do, it'll change and transform your life. And I think a part of this argument can be brought to bear, and I want to close with this idea, can be brought to bear with this debate between the cross of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus. Now, this is some, something that is somewhat underground, so I don't know how many of you guys have heard of this debate that's going on, but essentially what's happened is over the past, I don't know, maybe 100 years or so, there's been this movement to kind of divorce the cross of Jesus from the kingdom of Jesus, which is an artificial thing. In reality, when you look in Scripture, the cross and the kingdom go together. We know how central the cross is. We talk about that all the time. But do you know that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than anything in the Gospels? In fact, when he talks about it in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, he talks about this gospel, this good news, and the word euangelion is used. Now, the Greek word euangelion was essentially an announcement in the, in the ancient world. It was, used, it was used to actually welcome kings back from victory on the battlefield. And so this euangelion would be the good news proclamation that the king has won his victory, and now he's returning back. Let's celebrate him. Let's have a parade. Let's glorify him because he is the one who has given us victory and we are the people of his kingdom and we get to dwell with our king in the kingdom. Now keep all that in mind as you see what Jesus says as he begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1. What does he say the gospel is? In verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, which was what? Saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. In the two places Jesus defines what the gospel is here, he says it's the kingdom of God which is at hand. In other words, the king is here, he has arrived, I brought my kingdom with me, and victory is coming through what? The cross and the resurrection, which is what Jesus' focus was from the very beginning of his ministry. 
It is coming. He's announcing it already. And he's saying, begin the parade because the victory is here. And what is the celebration? It's that the king has arrived and he's brought his kingdom right here. It is at hand. And so I think a better way of saying this is that the cross and the kingdom are joined together as central aspects of the gospel. You cannot divorce those two things without getting less than a three-dimensional gospel. The cross is actually the way to the kingdom. Jeremy Treat says this, the kingdom and the cross are held together by Christ, Israel's Messiah, who brings God's reign on earth through his atoning death on the cross. The kingdom is the ultimate goal of the cross, and the cross is the means by which the kingdom comes. Jesus' death is neither the failure of his messianic ministry uh, or, nor simply the prelude to his royal glory, but the apex of his kingdom mission. The cross is the throne from which Jesus rules and establishes his kingdom. Look, I think getting the gospel right on this point is so, is so important. Because if the gospel is just about how do I individually get saved, then the gospel becomes more about me than it does about Jesus. But if it's about the reigning king who has come to bring me into his kingdom through his cross, then ultimately the gospel becomes about Jesus, the reigning king who in the end has brought his kingdom. I think that's why that's so important for us to understand. It answers for me the free grace lordship question. Because what happens is that the cross brings us into the kingdom, and when you live in the kingdom, you live as a kingdom citizen. You are, your allegiance is to the king, you live for the joy of the king, you live in the kingdom reality rather than the kingdoms that you left behind. And the constant process of repentance is actually a gift that allows us to repent, to turn away from the things that we would be allied to in the world, and to continue to al align ourselves and to place our allegiance with the king who is Jesus in his kingdom. That's the process of repentance. It's actually a gift. It's not a burden. And so my confidence level on this is, again, a nine. I respect uh, the, the focus on keeping grace as a free gift, and I'm 100% behind that idea, but I think the biblical testimony of repentance and the importance of that is so critically important. I would say at North, I don't think we have a, uh, an official position printed in any kind of document on this, but I would also say that we value discipleship as a huge value here, Confession, things like confession and repentance and spiritual growth, we believe are to be natural and to be an outworking of our faith. We believe in the work of the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in our lives so that we look more like Jesus as we grow and as we are transformed. And we also believe in things like accountability and church discipline. You can't believe in those things unless you, unless you don't believe that people can confess and repent in the end, okay? So that's where we stand there. So we're going to close right now, and as we close, just let me say this. I hope that not only has your, if you had any questions about any of these topics, that questions have been answered for you. But again, like I said in the beginning, I hope that this brings us back to the place where we can see how beautiful this gospel message truly is, how brilliant it is, and that it's meant not to just be either believed or disbelieved, but that if it's believed, it is to change our lives in a way that gives us a whole new hope and perspective and focus, not just for this life, but for eternity, that we have a hope that is never dying and that is everlasting in what Jesus has done for us. And look, in all the things we're arguing about right now, we can continue to argue those things have their places, but this is the most important thing that we have to get right. And so thank you for hanging with me as we've been talking about the essentials of the faith. Let me pray for us. I want to call the band back up as we celebrate who Jesus is through the good news that he has given us. Lord Jesus, we are thankful this morning that you have given us good news, that we can say there is truly good news because our God reigns. Lord Jesus, because you went to the cross, you made it possible that we would be people who are heirs of your kingdom. 
And it's been your desire from the beginning to reconcile us and to bring us back to you. And as we think about the cross and we think about why it was necessary for our sin that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled, that our sin might be atoned for, and that we might be brought into the presence of Jesus in his kingdom forever, we are eternally grateful. And we stand at awe at the cross. We stand at awe at what your kingdom means, not only one day, but right now in our lives. We thank you for transformation that you work in our lives. We thank you that repentance is not a duty. It is not a legalism. It is not a moralism. It is not a burden. In fact, repentance is an opportunity. It's a gift that you have given us so that we might, by your grace and by the power of your spirit, turn back on the things of the, the kingdoms of this world so that we can be more aligned with the king, so that our allegiance would be to him who gives us life and who rules with righteousness and justice forevermore. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to that day when your kingdom is made new and we uh, get to be with you forever. We thank you for your goodness towards us. We pray looking forward to that day. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Again, I hope you have enjoyed your uh, hearty helping of theological vegetables this morning. Hopefully it makes you stronger as you, as you digest it throughout the week. Um, I'll stop with that metaphor. Uh, I think it stops there. Um, so, uh, but, but thank you for being with us this morning. May you be reminded of the goodness of the good news in Jesus Christ this week and encouraged and edified by that. Uh, we want to remind you that as we leave here this morning, just as Kirsten announced earlier, this is the last day to vote on our budget proposal for this coming week. So if you haven't had a chance to do that, you can do it online now. You can also vote um, in the lobby, but the voting will close at 1030. So you got 15 minutes to get, it, to get it in and get it done, okay? So as we release you today, have a great week and go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.